0: This morning we're going to continue in Philippians and see how Paul cheers himself, how he provides for relief and rejoicing for others. It's fitting because that's the way he ended our passage last week. He ended by telling the Philippians and their church that he wanted to rejoice with them and that they should rejoice with him. So now we get to see in sort of an odd way how he expects that to take place. Now, I should give you a heads up before we get started. I don't want you to be caught off guard. Our passage this morning is another one of Paul's travel logs, So he's going to tell you who's going where, when, and why he's sending this guy now and that guy later, and when he plans to come. I'll just come out and say it. I'm trying to tell you not to be bored while I read through the passage. We normally read passages like this like they are footnotes from a phone book. They pop up and we just have to muscle through in hopes that we can find the gospel somewhere else later. These aren't just Paul's logistics. The Spirit didn't include these in our canon on accident. Jesus was being good to the Philippians in the words of our passage, and he's being good to us here too. So little Christians, it's pretty simple for you this morning. I have one question. Why does Jesus need to give us other people for rejoicing? If you want to say it another way, why can't you rejoice alone in the church? Listen to our passage and listen to our sermon. See if you can answer that question. This is the gospel of Jesus in unexpected details. In Philippians 2... Verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him to you, just as soon as i see how how it will go with me and i trust in the lord that shortly i myself will come also i have thought it necessary to send to you epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier your messenger and minister to my need for he has been longing for you been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill indeed he was ill near to death You join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us a passage this morning filled with longing. We see Paul's longing to be cheered by news of the Philippians. We see the longing of Timothy and Epaphroditus longing for their relief after his recovery. And underneath it all, your longing for more of your spirit's work in your church. a longing you fulfill through the means of our shared life together. This morning we ask that you give us new longings. We confess to you that we do not guard our hearts as we should. We are powerless to change them. But in your longing for us and our redemption, you can and do change our hearts. You guard our hearts better than we ever could, and you fill us with new longings that match your own. So now use the clumsy explanation of your elegant word to catch our hearts and affections again. Lord Jesus, it is good news to us that you are jealous over us and have claimed us for yourself. So we ask that you would have more of us for yourself this morning. Turn and untwist rebel loves and raise dead hearts to life with new faith. Strengthen the weak and bring more fruit from those already fruitful in our midst. Make us as individuals and as families and as your gathered church the lush gospel vineyard that you desire by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, school is, wi- is winding down, it's May. So there are field days and exams and parties. And that means one very important thing for you conversationally. If you stall out in any conversation, if you lose your train of thought or you fall into some awkward transitional silence, you have one fail-safe get-out-of-jail-free card. There's about a -a month-and-a-half window leading up to June 1st, during which you and I are entitled to break uncomfortable moments by a handful of words you have any big plans for the summer it's foolproof you can ask it genuinely and sincerely but if you get stuck that's what you ask you can't go wrong if a person says yes then you just bought yourself five more minutes hearing about why they picked the spot they did and if it gets awkward again you're allowed to follow up asking about transportation how will you get there How long is the drive? Will you stop on the way or do it in one shot? Do you have any family going with you? Are there friends there? What will you do? And if you think it fails, because they say they have no plans, you get to talk about how great it is to have no plans. You know, it's such a busy year, just staying put will feel like a vacation in itself. You know, Kara and I did the same thing a couple years ago, it was wonderful. In fact, I'm a little bit jealous. I wish we didn't have a vacation planned. Take notes, Elizabeth Besel and Sarah Rice. You are graduating from high school, and that means that you're going to be seeing a lot of extended family and forgotten friends, and you're going to be making a lot of small talk. You're going to need to buy more time and conversation than you ever have. This trick could make all the difference. And when you and I read through a passage like this in a New Testament letter, that's how we treat it. It feels like housekeeping at best and filler at worst. It feels like some of your year-end papers in high school or college or grad school when you need to fill up blank space on a page. That's not what Paul is doing. He has no page count to maintain. He's not trying to take up space on a papyrus. It's actually the opposite here. Paul preaches the gospel to them and he encourages them in this letter. He challenges them and he instructs them with his words. But he doesn't include travel plans like this or his intention to send Timothy and Epaphroditus just so he can take up space. He doesn't do it to give them more words. He's telling them that his words aren't enough. Paul is telling them and the Spirit is telling you and me that no words are ever enough. He can tell them about, about Christ's humility. And he can preach to them good news about their peace in him and how they ought to be bold. But they need people there with them so they can see the gospel, not just read it off of a page. They need it walking around and interacting with them They need the gospel with faces on. Letters from an apostle can tell you to rejoice. They can tell you how you ought to endure or how you ought to repent. But the men that Paul talks about here are going to come and show them how to rejoice. They are going to come suffer with them and endure with them. There will be times that Timothy and Epaphroditus have to repent to the Philippians. And there are going to be times that they ask for repentance from them because it's needed. Look at the way that Paul described humility in the beginning of chapter 2 and then try and fit that together with our section here. He says, Doing nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Counting others as more significant than yourself and looking after their interests first. He uses some of the same words. Look at the way that he describes these two men. Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare and Christ's interests instead of his own. And Epaphroditus surely considers the Philippians more significant to himself because he's been longing and distressed for them while he was on his deathbed. It baffles me, actually, to picture him lying there near death, distressed for them because they've heard about how he was sick and he's worried how the news will hurt them. I don't even have a category for that kind of selfless love. He's deathly ill and hoping to recover so that his death won't grieve them. In the beginning of the chapter, Paul told them to cultivate the humility of Christ Now he's sending these men to live it out in front of them. Because discipleship is more than just a transfer of new information. You can't disciple people with a postcard. It has to be face to face. Our lives lived out together. Personal and invasive interaction of the gospel. It's the gospel in you that presses the gospel deeper into me. We might say it like this Christian discipleship is the external means that Jesus uses to bring his redemption to us while he continues to change our minds and hearts by his spirit in us. There's a good reason that discipleship must and does work like this. Our fall in Adam wasn't a memo. It wasn't a new stamp on our passport. And our sin and our curse have never been content to be pen pals with us. They were and are a radical invasion of all that we are and everything and everyone around us. So Jesus can't answer them just by shouting at them from a distance. And he can't pull us out of them just by calling our names. Jesus was never content just to send word of necessary changes, new policies through the prophets. Jesus didn't just send a list of words. Jesus is the word made flesh. He came to be all of the obedience and all of the sacrifice that we need. And he lived and walked and ate with his disciples. I don't want to minimize the fact that he did teach them, but he also knew them personally. He confronted them and he comforted them. He showed them what compassion looked like. He didn't just tell people that compassion was good, he actually extended it. He didn't just tell them that sin was wrong, go fix it, He fought it for them and with them. In the incarnation, He wasn't just coming as a messenger sent to tell us that death and disease and brokenness are all unfortunate. He hated them, and He did it by healing the blind and the sick and raising the dead. Finally, by suffering for us and rising to accomplish the resurrection that we desperately need and waits for us now. Incidentally, it's because of a doctrine of the incarnation and passages like this, that books and blogs and podcasts are no substitute for life lived face to face in the church. I'm not telling you you can't use those things. Don't hide behind those things to escape the church. That's why we don't think you should plant churches by building small theaters for satellite fed sermons. Podcasts and blogs may say things very well. But they have never said anything specific or personally perceptive to you. No podcast has sat in your living room and listened to the way that you talk to your wife. They can't comfort you when you're caught in grief or sin. They can't fight for you. They won't pray for you. They won't fail in front of you and then repent and show you more of the gospel than you'd seen before. Books are great and useful, but they have never offered me real friendship. That's why we don't mail a bunch of well-intentioned letters and gospel tracts across oceans hoping to reach people. We send missionaries the gospel with hands and feet like Luke Smith and the Bartons. And ministry like that, personal, invasive ministry like that is costly. It means for us that the gospel is more than just good advice. My life and ministry have to be more than just offering well-turned phrases at appropriate times. That's what Toastmasters is for. It's not the church. I tell all of our interns, and I've told many of you, that the most valuable part of my internship here at New St. Peter's long ago, before my ordination, was the time that I spent with the session. I didn't read their blogs. We didn't have formal mentoring time where they taught me little tricks for shepherding. They didn't life coach me for one hour a week. I just spent significant amounts of time with them through the year and every year since. Time spent with men that have been shaped by the gospel. Being shepherded and cared for by them and watching them shepherd you. I've seen them fight for your marriages, wrestle with you in addictions, do the hard work of confronting sin you were blind to, and celebrating and restoring you, and grieving with you when you hurt. And it's never been a top-down or one-directional thing for them. They need the same things from you, and they do the same things gladly for each other. It is not just good news shouted from a distance. It is the gospel live together. Life and discipleship in the gospel is so much more than a series of student-teacher relationships. We have no Sanctification 403 that you can sign up for your senior year. There's no advanced coursework in it. There's no syllabus for it. In fact, Paul uses three metaphors in our passage to describe life in the church together and school isn't in the list. Paul starts with what we might expect, the family imagery. He referred to Timothy as his son and Epaphroditus as his brother. That's no surprise to us. We expect to talk about the church like a family. Because we are. We are, or should be, bound together permanently by more than just demographic similarities. Statistics about race and income and level of education. Your mistakes and resumes don't qualify you or disqualify you. You've never been here because you made some social and relational cut. Because that's not the way family works. We tend to use familial terms to talk about the church and give it a warm, rosy feel in our conversations. But that's just because you and I are hopeless romantics you don't actually believe any of those things about real family. You just believe it about metaphorical family. We say it together when we administer membership vows like we did a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to ruin that moment for you going forward, but I want you to think about what you're really saying as a congregation when you put the vows to new members. We say something along the lines of, we have many friends, but you to us are more. Now we are family. Think about all of the people, all of the awkward situations and functions you have with your extended family. Families are often odd mixes of of mismatched people, most of whom would never have chosen each other. They belong together, but they wound each other. And they love each other relentlessly, largely because they're stuck with each other. There's no escape. That's actually good for us in the church. I don't mean to take away the affection. I'm not saying there's no affection in it. Paul certainly uses son and brother here to refer to these men with tremendous affection. But unless your house is radically different than mine, you know that fathers and sons and brothers and sisters fight, you know how they can drive each other crazy but that the fights never separate them. Paul actually has to move on to other metaphors because the idea of family doesn't cover all of it for him. He goes on to call Epaphroditus his fellow worker and his fellow soldier. Hear me me well. Let me say this carefully. The church is not created or saved by her own works. But when he calls Epaphroditus his fellow worker, he reminds us that there is a labor to it. When he calls him his fellow soldier, he reminds us that there's a fighting in the church. More than just the fighting I was talking about a minute ago, and more than our fighting with each other, there's an all-out war as we fight together against brokenness and unbelief everywhere we find it. No one who's been in the church any length of time can honestly describe life in the church as easy. If we ever tell you something along those lines, call us on it, because it's not true. That's a sales pitch. The church is beautiful, but it is work and it is war. And Jesus has put us together in all of those things. And by picking these three metaphors... Family, labor, and war, and countless others elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul is telling us that life together under the gospel of Jesus and as a church is too big and too full to fit in one picture. That's why Jesus gives us the gospel in people. That's why Paul is sending Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's why Paul hopes to come to them soon, because word pictures and letters are never going to do it justice. So he sends me the gospel lived with names and homes and voices and all kinds of circumstances and all kinds of struggles. He sends me the gospel this way because it's his new life, not just described, but actually lived. Earlier I said that I didn't have categories for the kind of selflessness and humility that Paul describes in Epaphroditus. And I don't have any for myself, but I know a few people who do. A couple of years ago I was at Presbytery, which is our denominational meeting for all the pastors and all the churches in some region. Our denomination as a whole is broken up into smaller presbyteries across the country New St. Peter's belongs to the North Texas Presbytery. So there I was at a presbytery meeting. We start our meeting with worship, and then we have some introductory pieces, announcements, and prayer requests. We introduce visitors. And then we have a pretty full and pretty rigid outline of business that we need to conduct, decisions that need to be made, men that need to be examined and questioned for ordination. In the course of business, you learn pretty quickly that everything I said earlier about the church's extended family is true at Presbytery, too. It's mismatched and awkward. It all holds true for our Presbytery. There are very different pastors and very different churches and personalities and cultures. And it's taken me a long time, but I can say now that I'm actually glad for the variety, at least most of it. It may be awkward, but there is real beauty to the way that Jesus fits his body of the church together. Because it's not my body, and I'm not the head. I need members who are different than I am. So there are guys that are more or less relaxed, and guys who are very serious, almost severe in their approach to things. And a couple of years ago, I was sitting at a presbytery meeting, And in the middle of the introductory pieces, guys were asking for prayer and making announcements about various things going on in their churches. And one of the most serious and most severe guys I can imagine in our presbytery stood up to speak. So I just braced myself for whatever staunch thing was going to come out of his mouth next. Uncharitably, I expected it to be something heavy handed. But he stood up and he slowly fumbled through a prayer request for his own health. He hated that his recent stroke had made his speech so labored and slow. He couldn't think of the words that he wanted to. He often used the wrong word. He stuttered. And he wanted to ask for continued recovery so that it wouldn't take him so much work. I'm sorry, it wouldn't take so much work for his congregation to listen to him. He also wanted to give thanks for their patience in putting up with him over the last several months since the stroke. He said that people had been so gracious to let him keep pastoring them. Since that time, I have listened to him very differently. He has, as far as I can tell, made a full recovery from the stroke, and he and I still disagree on a number of things. But I have more to learn about pastoring and godliness from him than I ever imagined. He actually loves the church and cares for their welfare in the interest of Christ more than his own. I would have stood up to ask for more sick days. The more I'm around him, the more I realize how really gentle and selfless he is, even if we disagree. Reading about men like Epaphroditus is helpful for us. But we actually need to be discipled by living, breathing men and women and children, young and old, new and mature worshipers. People who have been shaped by the gospel. We need to be with them as they're shaped and as they shape us. Because that's Jesus' kindness to us. In his kindness and by the work of the Spirit, that is how Jesus has chosen to shape us with his gospel. Paul intends all of this. Sending Epaphroditus and then Timothy and then coming himself. All of this is for their benefit so that they can rejoice together in Jesus' goodness to all of them. That's the purpose of our living together. We find many statements throughout Scripture pleading with God to return to us the joy of our salvation. Let us rejoice with you and your goodness to us. Let us hear the rejoicing you have over your people. Sing over us in our salvation. And Paul says we grow together and offend each other and grieve together so that in the end Jesus can let us hear and increase our rejoicing together. Paul wants the Philippians to have a chance to rejoice and celebrate over Epaphroditus' recovery and his restoration to them, and Jesus puts us together for more of the same. We rejoice when there is healing, and we grieve together when there is not, but we always have the rejoicing of final resurrection ahead of us. We struggle together and commiserate when sin seems so unshakable, but Jesus has given us to each other so that we can fight together and share in the rejoicing when there is restoration in a way that we could not do alone. You cannot rejoice like that privately. This Wednesday, one of our members came into my office to tell me about one of his family members' sin. His brother professes to be a Christian but only seems interested in the comfort his sin can give him right now. And I sat there and hated it with him but I didn't have any good advice for him. In fact, there was a lot in his story that I could relate to and I had to tell him I didn't know that I had ever been in his situation and handled it well. So then later in the day, I went out for a beer with an unbelieving friend of mine. It wasn't the purpose of our getting together, but he started telling me all about sin that he saw around him. Not his own this time, but sin around him and the way that he suffered because of it. Sin that he saw in his friends. Abuse and addiction. My response included the gospel, but it was much less about me telling him right answers. It's much more about hating sin together with him while holding out the hope of Jesus to him. And later on that same evening, another friend of mine who believes the gospel and belongs to Jesus confessed sin to me and some of our other friends. Sin that had largely stopped but still has lingering effects. And we had a good discussion. I was very encouraged and I am very encouraged by everything I've heard from him and our conversation since. But I have to tell you, life together was wearing me out on Wednesday. I went to bed late Wednesday night and I was whipped, almost overwhelmed by how awful sin is and how much I hate it, how daunting an enemy it seems. As I was falling asleep late at night, it occurred to me that if sin is this overwhelming and this awful, Jesus could overcome it and his life and cross and his resurrection. And I didn't have to be afraid of it. I didn't have to be overwhelmed and feel hopeless about anything that had gone on. I hope that I get to celebrate with all of these guys, seeing their sin put away, sin and their families put away, In their own hearts and unbelief traded for faith and worship in one who has never claimed to belong to Jesus nor wanted to. Because that's why Jesus has given us to each other. He takes us, as we heard in our baptism this morning, He takes wastelands and He makes them rivers of His grace. And we spring up and we blossom together and we bear fruit together and we rejoice over it together. And God glorifies himself in us together. So Paul wants us to rejoice with the Philippians and be cheered by news of how we are doing. Paul did it by sending a son and a brother to be present with them. I want you to know that the Father rejoices over you in his redemption and his desire for us is to have us restored and remade through the cross and resurrection for our endless rejoicing in him. And he did the same thing we just saw Paul do. He sent Jesus the Son to be God with us, to bring us in, to be adopted as brothers and fellow heirs that's why in his kindness, Jesus, after ascending to his Father's right hand, sent his disciples out to live with and in the churches. And he continues to give us to each other to enjoy and grow and fall into and rest in the gospel together. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have been infinitely kind to us. In all that you have promised and all that you have fulfilled for us, you are the beloved Son that the Father sent to come and gather us for yourself, not with more advice, but new life. We ask that you would give us greater rejoicing together as we live under and enjoy and celebrate the gospel's work in us. Not that it is easy. Not that it is always pleasant or casual, but it is full and it is lavish. And no matter how weak we feel in it, you are much stronger than our weakness. In fact, you have chosen our weakness to glorify yourself so that you might display your strength. We confess that often when we are together, we can see each other's weaknesses And we're afraid of our own being exposed. But we ask that you would give us peace. Knowing that our weakness does not disqualify us. Our weakness on its own is not to be enjoyed. But your strength shown through it is to be boasted in. It's to be celebrated. We ask that you give us more rejoicing and celebration like that. So would you be kind to us, invade us with your gospel, the gospel that has been preached to us in your word, and the gospel that comes to us with hands and feet and faces that gets in our way, sometimes offends us, asks for repentance from us. The gospel that comes to us in your people, the grace of Jesus putting arms around us as we grieve, hugging us and kissing us on the cheek as we celebrate and rejoice your goodness to us. We ask that you do all of these things for our good, for our comfort and growth in the gospel, and for your own glory in the church. We ask them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.